325 of the Survival Podcast and our official, we've talked about it a lot lately, but our official 15th birthday. That means that today not only are we 15 years old, our 16th year begins. I think that's kind of cool. I think we have a, a tendency with anniversaries, birthdays, things like that, to always think about the number itself, like turning 50 or turning 51. But instead of thinking is the end, it's kind of cool to start thinking of anniversaries and birthdays and, and, and you know memorable days as the beginning of the next thing, the next year, the next cycle, the next quarter, what have you. I always did that with my salespeople, and it just kind of occurred to me when I hit go live today. I didn't really plan on saying that. But I still with my salespeople, like the end of the third quarter really wasn't the end of the third quarter. The third quarter was the whole last three months. No, what this is is the beginning of the fourth. What are you going to do this quarter? What are you going to do this year? We're going to do a lot this year. We're going to kick off our 16th year with what I hope will be a really great episode. Uh, this is something that's been flipping around in my brain for a while. If I had to list 12 macro techniques, I mean, not go down in the weeds, just say, like, if you do these 12 things, or let's be clear, I don't necessarily need you to do these 12 things. These are the 12 things that if you look at them, analyze them from the context of what I'm going to give you today, and begin to implement the ones that make sense to you, along with proper uh, tactics and tech uh, strategy, because these are going to be techniques, and we're going to go that deep today before we get into them individually. Uh, it'll work, and it'll be worth your time and your effort and your money. That's that's what this is about. This isn't like, well, you can just throw this out there somewhere and it'll work and it'll whatever that means, because what does it works mean? This is about if you want to build a truly interconnected, effective homestead, whether it's on a tenth of an acre in the city or a half of an acre on the outskirts and the suburbs, or whether it's on 20 acres or 40 acres or a thousand acres. These are the things that you can do. And this is not about making money, but to provide for yourself and your family and your neighbors. And these are like the keystone techniques within the design that if you implement some, all, a portion thereof, you know they're going to work out. And as you choose the ones that seem to make sense for you, you can actually reverse engineer a design. I'm going to go deep today into techniques versus tactics versus strategy. I have to do that so that you'll be cautious in your decisions once I give you all these great techniques. But you can figure out the techniques that are going to work. You can say, well, I don't ever want to own rabbits, so I'm not going to do that as part of my small livestock uh, techniques. That's fine. I'm not going to probably do rabbits either. There's a lot of um, issues that need to be solved. It's all doable with heat in Texas to do rabbits. And it's one more thing to do. And I'm the only one that eats them. So I'll cross it off. Maybe you cross off the whole thing with small livestock. That's okay. That's okay. You pick the ones that make sense for you based on your lifestyle, your property, your goals, and your agendas. But then finding the way they interconnect. You do that. And then you can actually start with technique, reverse engineer through tactic, and find strategy versus the other way, which is generally we teach, is define the strategy, apply the tactics with the known techniques. It works both ways if you're cognizant of what you're doing. And when I get to that segment today, I want to tell you in advance, 
It might be the most important thing that I'll teach you today. And it may be the most important thing that I can teach you, period. And it's not just about homesteading and permaculture. Before we do that, let's go ahead and hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor day number one today is Paul Wheaton over at permies.com. Paul has put together a really awesome series of um, workshops that you can get for only 30 bucks, three to be specific, actually four to be specific. Uh, the Berm Shed movie, the Wolfati Greenhouse movie, plans for the Wolfati Greenhouse, and uh, the Roundwood Picnic Table 3D plans. What this is really all about, all of this put together, is teaching you how to build with wood without needing a sawmill. Some places we might, you know, straighten the edge of a log or something like that. And I've seen a lot of people, you know, talk about getting a uh, a mill, like a bandsaw mill or something like that. And the really good ones are sixty, eighty thousand dollars. And I think they're a great thing. But I think if you have like just your place and you're not planning on using it for something else, you're better off hiring someone to do that than buying one because I don't think you'll ever get your money back. Now I think they can turn into a really great business, but What's even better is being able to not need an expensive piece of machinery like that and learning how to build with roundwood the way that most of the early settlers did and the way that many Native Americans did as well is an awesome thing. And it opens things up if you buy a raw piece of land or let's say you buy a property that has a lot of timber on it and it's got a house, but there's a lot of infrastructure you want to build. This will teach you how to do it in a really great way and for only 30 bucks there is a link for it in today's audio notes and there's a link for it in the video notes below if you happen to be watching the video next up today i wanted to share this at least one more time from sean mills now sean has been an expert council member at tsp now for about five or six years he has answered hundreds of questions for the audience both directly on the air and indirectly in places like telegram etc he's been a huge part from the Colts community in Tennessee. He's worked really hard to help as many people as he can. He got a ton of questions about moving water. So he's putting together the definitive education for you on solar water pumping, how to use small-scale solar to move water across your property. It's interesting to me. I had somebody email me, and Sean actually covered this right after the episode they were asking about. They just hadn't caught up yet. And they said, why don't you use a hydraulic ram pump? Well, if you have enough vertical drop and you have moving water through your property, that's a fine idea. A lot of property doesn't have that. Even if it has moving water, you have to have a good six foot to 10 foot of straight down drop to really maximize what a ramp pump can do. But if you have like a slow moving stream or you have some surface water or something, you have tanks that you can catch a lot of water in, but you can't hold it high on the landscape. You need some form of energy to move it. Well, doing it with an off-grid solar system is great. But how do you do it? Sean is putting together the definitive guide to how to do that. And I would say if you think this information might be beneficial to you in any way, consider backing his Kickstarter. And think of it this way, backing Sean in his work. He's done a lot for this community. So let's consider, you know, paying him back a little bit and helping him make this thing a reality because I know this is important to him. And it's definitely the case that I think he's earned a little bit of our support, if not a whole lot. All right. So, guys, with that. I'll just real quick before I, I move on from Sean and that. 
I backed it at a fairly substantial level, and I have no need to use solar to move water anywhere on property. Uh, I still might in one particular application I can think of, but I didn't buy it for that. I bought it because I'm supporting Sean, and it will help me to be a better teacher by having the information myself and adding it to my knowledge base. All right, so let's get into this. I want to start off with some basics. Now, I know all of you showed up to find out what the 12 things are. And I'll give them to you. And we're not going to go real long today. I will going to give you kind of the mile high view of each one and what I think is important about it. But there's three things I want to cover before we go. And the third one is the really, really important one. Let's start off with, though, we have to have some permaculture mindset and principles coming into this. Or what we're going to end up with is you pick two or three or four or five or seven, however many of these things. And they're all disjointed and not connected together. And even if they work, because work is subjective. What does work mean? You know, there's the people when I talk about diet and I say that, a, that, that the human diet should be based on animals, not plants. That doesn't mean you can't eat plants. It means it should be based on animals. That that's where our health is optimum when we're eating fat and protein is, you know, 90 percent of our caloric intake. That's not total volume. Well, people can do this and people can do that. I'm, I'm sure they can. You, you can stick your dick in a beehive and beat on the roof if you want to. It's probably not a good idea. It will probably hurt, right? You, you, you know, you can eat a bean burger instead of a hamburger, but it's probably not optimum for your health. There's a lot of things we can do that won't kill us, but it's not optimum. So when somebody says something, well, it works. Well, what does that mean? How much energy goes in versus how much energy comes out? What are you doing with waste, et cetera? We need to think about um, making the most of our resources on our property. And what that starts with is for us to start analyzing anything that looks like a waste product and say, wait a minute, is this a resource? And there's a big difference in doing that and being like my granddad. I love my granddad. I'm talking about my granddad in Pennsylvania on my dad's side. I loved him, but the man was a junk man. He was the dude, if you ever watch that show Pickers where the guys drive around in the van, I know it's all fake, but he's the dude that like, you know, they, they, they go through this giant pile of crap. Nothing's been moved in years. They dig underneath it and it's full of mud or something. And they find this thing and they say, well, do you want to sell that? And the dude's like, um, I, I, I don't know. I can't let go of that. Well, it's been laying here for 30 years. That was my granddad. That is not what I mean when I say analyze waste and see if it's a resource. I mean, look at everything that gets produced in your home or on your land and that you say, well, that's a problem. Well, what can I do with it? If it's a big pile of brush and you think, well, I'll set it on fire. If you set it on fire a little different, it can become biochar. That would be an example. Garbage. So we're going to talk about composting today, but, but tons of people, you know, get a lot of things shipped to their house. Well, they come in cardboard boxes. That is a carbon resource that most people either burn or recycle or whatever. And if you have to recycle it because you can't figure out what to do with it, that's okay. And that's better than it going to a landfill. But what would be even better is if you said, well, what can I, how can I channel this? So the first point, again, analyze all waste streams and ask if, see if they're actually resources. And it is up to you. How creative can you be in turning it into a resource? The best use of a thing as a resource will be something that stays on your property and improves the system as a whole. The next best thing will be it goes off your property, but it gives you money 
so that you can improve your property. And the third best thing would be that it goes into some sort of recycling that you get nothing for. And the, and the last worst case scenario is it goes in the garbage and goes down to the dump. And you should just be willing to put everything that's an output on your property through that chain and do everything you can not to get to number four. Some things will be number four, but they don't all have to be. They don't all have to be. And it's the most important thing is that some resource isn't going to a dump that could be making your homestead you're working so hard on better. And, and it'll make sense as we go through this thing. Next one is function stacking and interconnections. If you do a thing, it should have at least two effects. And if you're doing a thing and it doesn't have two effects, it's up to you to, to sit back, use the three-pound gray matter computer in your brain, in your, your Cro-Magnon skull, and say, how do I make this one thing do multiple things? And if, if you try hard enough, it will very, very, very seldom be the case that your mental computer will not eventually give you an answer. And simply sometimes moving a thing from this spot to this spot makes that happen. And that's very important. Now, the last one. I shudder a little bit inside when I do a, a, a podcast and I say, I'm going to give you seven techniques for this or 20 techniques for that, and especially when we're in the realm of homesteading and permaculture. And it's because of the way that the system in our society works of making the average person nothing but a worker be, with no idea of the overriding strategy or even the tactical implementation of things. Even people that think that they're really educated, high-level jobs, really pay very well, most of them they're, they're down in some sort of little compartmentalized area. Somebody else has done all the rest of the strategic thinking for them and the tactical stacking toward the strategy, and they're just in their little segmented tunnel. That's not bad when you're running a company. You have to have commanders. You have to have lieutenants. You have to have sergeants, and you have to have privates if you compare it to the military. And you need that. And it, it, it's the mindset that led to things like the assembly line, et cetera. But when it comes to your homestead or your life or your career or your own business, you do not have that luxury. You don't have that luxury. And the only way that you're going to understand this is to, to delineate each thing that you think about doing. Is this a technique? Is this a tactic? Or is this part of, is this the overriding strategy? And this again is probably the most important thing that I can teach you, not just today, but in all the work that I've done for 15 years. This is the most important thing I will ever teach you because you can apply it to literally everything. So I'm going to put some time into it today and I'm going to give you three different analogies to make sure that you understand this. So a technique is what we're going to talk about today. A technique is, we're not talking about hugo culture today, but it would be a hugo culture map, a wicking bed, a worm bed, right? Keeping chickens in a coop and run, keeping chickens free range, keeping chickens in a tractor, right? An aquaponics system. These are all techniques, okay? If we go into tactics, it's how and where and when how do we stack in time and space the technique to accomplish the strategy that we'll get to in a minute? So if we're doing chicken tractoring, 
making an orchard, that's also a technique. Connecting the two and running the chicken tractor through the orchard at a specific time when bad fruit drops and fruit cycles are running is a tactic because we're taking two techniques and we're strategically linking them together. But we're still not at strategy yet. Okay. Now, when we go on to strategy, this is the overriding goal, the, the overriding goal of the entire system. So a strategy might be to develop a self-sufficient, self-reliant, interconnected system that provides 50% of the calories that my family needs. That's a strategy, right? To build an educational facility that allows students to come and learn techniques and tactics to implement their own strategy. That would be a strategy. And the best thing usually to do is to architect a strategy, figure out the tactics and the techniques that go with those tactics to develop a design. Unfortunately, this is very, very difficult for many people to do because it is exactly the opposite of how we're taught. So we're going to talk about reverse engineering it when we go through the techniques today. But that's one. That's the that's what we're talking about today. Let's do it with an analogy, though. Let's do it as a military commander. So a commander in the military will look at an overriding strategy of how to achieve an objective. Right. Whatever that objective is. And the the ground troops are primarily trained in nothing but techniques and a little bit in tactics. And when I say ground troops, I'm talking about corporals, privates, specialists, people below the NCO grade. As you come into becoming an NCO, you start to learn more about tactics instead of just focusing on techniques. But if you were ever in the military, you know, you go in the military, you learn how to clean your weapon. That's a technique. You know how to clear your weapon. That's a technique. You know how to clear a malfunction. That's a technique. You know how to shoot. That's a technique. You know how to move with a partner. That's a technique. Tactics are what your NCOs implement to accomplish the strategy that was handed to them by the commander. Okay? If that makes sense. So the commander says the strategy is... We need you to take this hill. And he may not explain the rest of the strategy might be once we take this hill, we have over overwatch of the area and we can cut off the supply line. And that goes to an even higher strategy that was handed down by his commander, the commander's commander. But the NCOs, having been on the ground and understanding the situation, will come up with the tactics in how they maneuver and use their troops to take the hill. And the troops will employ the techniques with somebody else worrying about the majority of the tactical analysis and the overriding strategy. It's not their place. Okay. And in a military situation, it kind of has to be this way. If you think of it as a ship going from one port to another, I'm spending time on this. It's important. Okay. Please understand that it is as important. The strategy might be. The ship is going to leave this port and it needs to get to this port. Understanding the complete lay of the land, the trade winds, etc. The captain is going to say, we're going to leave at this time. We're going to take this course. We're going to do these things. The tactics will probably be taken over by somebody like an XO, right? And that XO will say, okay, this, the skipper has said what we're supposed to do. Now let's go get this done. 
and he'll have his deckhands and his sailors and, and what have you. And they will determine, uh, yeah, this was a great idea until a storm came. And then they will use a tactic of let's avoid the storm. For that tactic to be pulled off, there will be techniques like, you know, plotting a new course. Or if something goes wrong on the ship, there might be a really basic technique like this cargo's getting loose. Sailor, get up there and reestablish that, 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 that knot that was holding that stuff in place. And so it's very important that we understand that. Because if I give you these, these techniques and you say, Jack said these work, I'm just going to take six of them and go do it at random. I guarantee you the best case scenario is you'll feel at the end of it like it works okay. They all do what they're supposed to do. They will not be interconnected. You'll be moving nowhere toward a strategy. The tactics will be missed. Locations, space, and time both will be like space stacking and time stacking will be non-existent, right? And interconnections, if they happen, will happen by accident, okay? So I think it's actually a great thing to expose people to a lot of really great solid techniques. Let them sit down and say, based on my budget and my desires and my you know, biases, my likes and dislikes, and what I have available to me and what I want to do and what I don't want to do. Here's four or five that I could implement over the next year or two. That's great. And I'm glad you're excited when that happens. But I think what happens then, if you do this right, we sit down, we'll make a list of those. We start prioritizing what we get in return for our effort. On some levels, that can actually be still a mistake. Because a lot of times, well, this thing gives me more of what I want, but if I do this thing first, this thing gives me even more over here. So then we need to take a little bit of time and start figuring out from that what we really want. Why did we pick those? That's how we're going to discover our strategy. Then we're going to take and use our tactical mind to interconnect the techniques we've selected, and, and then that is going to set our priority of what goes first, what goes second, what goes third, and more importantly, where they go and when we, we implement them and how we implement them and how we interconnect them. So when you say something like um, small livestock and Johnson Sioux composting, those two things connect very, very obviously because small livestock produce bedding that has manure on it and Johnson Sue turns that into compost, right? So that's an obvious connection. But once you start making this list of techniques you want to implement because of the output you're seeking, then you need to start asking, how does this connect to that? You know, if you, if you have, and, and you can do this beyond what we're going to talk about today, for instance. If you're always annoyed that when you sit on your back porch in the afternoon and the sun angle gets low, you're blasted from underneath the cover of your porch with the sun, but that wouldn't be so bad in the winter, then a trellis with a vine is an, a design element that you might implement that the problem pointed you at. But then that might actually clue you into some other techniques that can be interconnected with what you're going to do. So I hope this makes sense. And again, I'll tell you this is incredibly important because – this idea of breaking things down and being very clear, is this a technique, a tactic, or a strategy? If you're designing your life with lifestyle design, most important thing I can teach you. If you're setting up a business, most important thing I can teach you. 
if it is a business that you plan on building to 50 employees that makes a thing, produces a thing, and delivers it somewhere in the world, most important thing I can teach you. If you're going to design a, a business that's based on a simple website with automated delivery, and you, all you do is market it, and other than marketing it, you don't touch it. Whatever needs to be delivered, whether it's a soft product with automation or it's a drop ship arrangement, you don't have to touch anything. It's still the most important thing that I can teach you. Anything that you would design with a, with a desired output, it needs to go through this process of analysis, strategy, technique, and tactics. Hopefully that makes sense. Moving on, let's start off with these techniques that you showed up for 24 minutes in. But again, it's important. That's why I spent so much time on it. Number one, wicking beds. Now, my personal favorite form of a wicking bed is a flow-through wicking bed, means there's a reservoir somewhere, pump kicks on, pump some water into the reservoir of the wicking bed, and then that water, when it overflows the maximum, instead of being discharged out the side through a hole on the ground, goes back to that reservoir. Now, you guys know I have fairly advanced aquatic systems. I have, you know, ponds that are 300 to 3,000 or more gallons, and some of my wicking beds work with those systems. So you might think to do a flow-through design wicking bed like Jack's talking about, i got to put in some ponds and have some fish and whatever. And maybe you want to do that, but maybe you don't. No, you don't have to do that. If you were to take something like a 100-gallon stock tank, bury it in the ground, and you didn't want to keep fish or anything else in it for whatever reason, you just didn't. You just didn't want that element in your life. If you set an absolute bottom with it and add a float valve and conceal it, let's say, behind a facade or something like that, so it doesn't get any light, and as, as it, if it does its thing every day and fills up your wicking beds for you and flows back in there, as the overall level gets low enough, just your, your city water or your well fills that reserve back up, you have an incredible productive system. Now, I personally wouldn't do that. But I can absolutely understand why somebody else would. And there's other, remember, interconnections and function stacking and getting more than one thing out? There's other ways to do this, right? You could have a series of wicking beds, and then you could have something that looks like a pond but ends up going dry, okay? And then that pond could overflow with micro-earthworks into a garden with irrigation swale-like paths. And every day, that system could kick on just from your city water or your well or what, or any, any source of water. It could use energy to push water through those wicking beds. Once those wicking beds are top off, the overflow would go into that pond and then spread out and irrigate your garden at the same time. That actually is another technique. That is a form of automated irrigation, which is another one of my keystones today. But I want you to get beyond what you see me do. A flow-through wicking bed, you need to look at it as what it is, a macro technique. The way I implement mine, I've got a pond. Fish live in the pond. I grow aquatic vegetation in the pond. I eat the fish. I feed the fish. Fish fertilize plants. It's sort of like aquaponics, but it's far more sophisticated because we're using soil. Um, that's not what a flow-through wicking bed is. That is the tactical implementation of a flow-through wicking bed. There's a hundred ways to push water through a wicking bed, have it come out the other side, and go somewhere 
whether it's back to a reservoir or off to do something else that doesn't have to have fish involved or a pond involved. Or even if it does, it doesn't have to do it the way that I do it. This is so important. We're, we're up here today. We're not down in the weeds. We're up at this macro level. But the reason this is such an awesome technique is you build the best soil you can. You put it into a wicking bed. It never dries out. The life in it is never dramatically disturbed. There is no need to ever till it. If we're going to plant something, even if there's a big stump from something last year, and I really need that spot, I can dig that one little spot out, put the new plant in, and go. I run wicking beds. I grow nothing but perennials in. I've got one that grows nothing but sage. I've got one that grows nothing but lemon balm and some chives and some other things. I've got another one that pretty much is my comfrey reserve. Because I plant comfrey anywhere on the property, the ducks find it and they eat it. It's an incredibly valuable plant to me. These are keystone sub uh, things in my system that I absolutely want to have the things I just told you. Bee balm is one of my premier herbs that I use to make teas with on an ongoing basis. I don't ever not want to have it. I don't ever not want to have it. Okay? And uh, so I use that wicking bed to make sure certain things never go away. So it doesn't have to be tilled. It doesn't have to be watered. It doesn't have to be irrigated. It's all taken care of. And that soil always stays in premium condition. So it's always premium soil. It always does what it's supposed to do. Uh, next up is Johnson Sioux-ish compost. That's a term I think you're, I'm the only person you'll hear use it unless they're talking about me saying it. Um, Johnson Sioux compost is like a Ph.D. level intensive form of composting primarily designed to create a very fungal compost primarily used to be spread uh, as a microbe introduction system. Like what the Johnson Sue and it's two people, Johnson and Sue say, is that an application rate to improve your soil with Johnson Sue compost is approximately a ton to an acre. Now, if you spread a ton on an acre, if you've ever spread a ton on a couple hundred square feet, you know how thinly that would be applied. You wouldn't be able to see it. It's like sifting a fertilizer, which is in a way what you're doing, or to make tea to be sprayed to even further enhance how much you can do with how little. They make these giant towers. You have to climb up a little ladder to put the stuff in. You have to... Suck. I looked at that and said, this is a brilliant idea, and I don't have time for this. I'm not welding rebar together. I take a four-foot-tall piece of goat fence. I make about a six-foot-across circle, so I'm not sure what the circumference of that, but going across, it's about six foot. Um, I then wrap that in weed blocker to help keep evaporation out the sides from happening, and I set it on the ground. I don't even use the pallet, but I think that would be a good idea, and I may – actually develop something even better than a pallet for my next batch of it in my next cycle. Uh, I have some um, land, landscape timbers laying around that are, you know, the ones that come from the tree that is all twisted at Lowe's and Home Depot, but they're straight enough to make something like that. And what I'm thinking about doing is building a square that's big enough for the ring to sit on and throwing hardware cloth across it so you get a beautiful airflow out of something like that. But you don't need it. That's really important thing. You don't need it. Um, and then I fill it up with the deep litter out of my coop every year. I do it once a year. I make about three rings, and that does all of it. As I fill it up, 
I take four pieces of three-inch pipe and put them around the circumference to create airflow through. And one piece of four-inch thin wall, the cheap, like, French drain-style pipe in the center. And when I did it this year, I didn't actually include those. And then I realized that was a mistake because I had been using it in the past. So I ended up like shoving a rock bar down there and, and wallowing out the hole for here. Those of you guys that were here, that's what I did after you left and realized we should have put that bigger piece of pipe in the center. Now, put that big piece of pipe in the center for a reason. OK, because if you go out and you buy the little like, like eight dollar plastic green sprinklers that are like a ring. They fit perfectly over a four-inch pipe. So all you do is hook up a garden hose and turn it on when you want to wet those down. I put one on each pipe, take some splitters, and take some leader hose and connect as many as you have. And I could come out there and turn an irrigation timer to five minutes a couple times a week. And you just set your valves so that when you turn that on, that they just barely get toward the outside and everything gets watered. You don't have to do drip irrigation or anything. Should you do it that way? Not necessarily. The actual technique here is piling up highly compostable material inside a ring and not turning it and allowing the primary breakdown that occurs. There'll be a bacterial flush and it will get hot. If you stick a compost thermometer in one of those, two or three days in, you'll be looking at 140 to 160 degrees. When compost goes over 165, you must turn it. It's too hot. I have never seen one of these get over that temperature. And I'm talking a three-foot-long probe thermometer checked everywhere. Highest I've ever seen is 160. And it's like clockwork that it will eventually hit 160, and it will begin to slowly come down. And as it comes down, because of the way you're doing this, and you're not breaking mycelium apart, when you turn it, once it gets cool enough, the mycelium can take off, your fungal breakdown begins, and you end up with a compost like nothing I've ever seen. So I don't care exactly how you tactically implement this, other than does it work for you. But the concept of building this stuff up, making sure that you allow airflow, and not turning it, that's the keystone technique that I'm at with you today. And I, I'm going to tell you, if you try this, will it be as fast as doing an every three or four day turn compost? So you can 21 days, you can finish it. No, you won't care. It makes a better product that will do more for you with less work. That's why it's one of my 12 bulletproof techniques. Next, um, small livestock. Now, this I've done whole shows on nothing but, you know, just the chicken side of things, let alone like let's talk about four or five of the most popular livestock that you can implement. When I talk about livestock today, though, I'm not talking about things that sometimes I will include like bees and worms. I believe that bees and worms are a form of livestock. I absolutely do. But in this case, I'm not putting them here. When I when I talk about this, I'm talking about critters that produce a direct product and produce a waste stream that can be used for fertility. So primarily what I'm talking about today, and I'm sure somebody else can figure something else to jam into this, but it's chicken, quail, ducks, rabbits, or fish. Fish? Waste product? You bet. Uh, the solids at the bottom of a fish pond are some of the richest organic matter you'll ever get. There's different, and I'm not going to get into exactly how you deal with that because in certain systems that might be a highly anaerobic substance and needs to go through something else. But you have a product that feeds you. You have a product that produces fertility. 
either directly or indirectly. Um, part of why I think this is so important is I do believe that we need to produce the most nutrient dense food that we can on our homesteads. If we are really going to talk about making a significant, significant dent in feeding ourselves. And let me be clear. I like peppers and tomatoes and eggplants. I really do. But no matter how high you get that brick free on peppers, eggplants, tomatoes, et cetera, lettuce, et cetera, it might taste really good. And it might be good for you, but it's not nutrient dense. It's a myth. It's, if something, if you're going to tell me something's nutrient dense, then I'm going to tell you to compare it to beef. And it better at least hold its own against beef. And an egg does. Beef is more nutrient dense, but, you know, an egg holds its own. Lettuce does not hold its own against beef for nutrient density. And so I think we have allowed certain people in our world to convince us there's a such thing as nutrient-dense lettuce and spinach and parsley. I like lettuce and spinach and parsley and cilantro, etc. And there's certainly some that's more nutrient-dense than others, but nothing holds a candle to an egg or a quail, especially skin-on, or, you know, sautéed quail liver or rabbit liver. Nothing holds a candle to that that you grow in the ground. I'm sorry. And for those of you that like to eat a lot of vegetables or you're even vegetarians or whatever, you go ahead and you do that. I won't put you down for it. But I won't deceive someone by trying to tell them that you're going to get the nutrient density out of a turnip that you're going to get out of, of, of you know, you could eat a truckload of turnips and the nutrient density out of one calf liver is so much higher it's not even worth comparing the two of them. So nutrient density plus the waste stream that feeds back into the vegetative systems, plus the ability to process what we would otherwise think of as waste. So you look at chickens, and we can literally feed chickens 100% off. If we, can, if we can finagle the deal, you can raise chickens and pigs 100% off waste streams that come from restaurants and school cafeterias, et cetera, because Billy Bond has done it. Billy Bond has done it. Billy Bond raises his chicken for free, and he worked out that his pork cost him about 25 cents a pound. Now, he's dedicated to doing that, but you won't do that with a turnip. And so livestock, because they can process waste, produce nutrient density utilizing waste, and can fit with their intrinsic characteristics into the overall system. In other words, an intrinsic characteristic of a chicken is that it scratches. That can be destructive or regenerative depending on how I channel that intrinsic behavior. Okay? So I think this belongs somehow in your system. Now, all 12 of these, just to be clear, I think I said this already. I'm not saying you should do all 12. Some people will. I didn't do all 12 yet. Probably 11. <laughs> But I certainly didn't show up and start doing all 12 of them the day I got here. You implement this across time. But I think unless you have a specific reason not to, some form of livestock does, belongs in your system, even if you have to go off of it to something like bees. Because living things are the most important component to an ecosystem. Even though, and this is the other thing you got to realize, and this is why we want to be able to, to, to channel waste. Life 
thrives on death. I said the most important thing I could teach you today is tactic, strategy, right, and technique and the difference between them. This is probably just just as important, though. Life thrives on death. A forest grows on a fallen forest. A lot, of, a lot of you guys out there are into one of my hobbies, keeping tropical fish. You know how many people try to keep tropical fish in sterile environments? Most of them. They're the ones that have to deal with ick all the time. They're the ones that have parasites. They're the ones that have fish with dropsy and fin rot and fin fungus and all this shit. And they have these tanks that look pristine and they're devoid of life. And every time there's a problem, they throw a chemical in there. My tanks have dirt bottoms and gravel or sand caps. And I'm moving more towards sand. When I put a tank together, I literally go out into one of my aquatic systems outside, take the sludge out of the bottom and mix it into the dirt bottom at the bottom of the tank before water goes into it. I take things like leaves. I plant plants, you know, and I allow things to die in that system because life thrives on death. Go outside and look at a forest. Everything that dies eventually passes through the gullet of a worm or is eaten by the teeth of the forest, which are the fungi. And it is processed and decomposed, and every tree is growing on that. And every animal is either eating something growing in that system directly or indirectly. And that if the, if the animal's a predator, let's say a hawk, and it's eating a squirrel, well, the squirrel's eating the acorn and the butternut and the black walnut. And where did that tree come from? It grew on the fallen forest of that which died before it. Life thrives on death. Life thrives on death. We are the most unnatural species on the planet in that we bury our dead at a depth where they don't decompose well. And we preserve the bodies in a way that they don't decompose well. We ensconce them in a casket and we ensconce the casket in a vault. And we have separated ourselves from the recycling nature of life and life thrives on death. So that's why I think livestock of some sort belongs in your system if you can make it work. Why wouldn't you? You travel all the time. Animals keep you on property. It is a sacrifice. I'll admit that. Sometimes I think about having less animals for that very reason. A lot of things can be automated, though. All right. Um, now, huh, the Santos Lives says Steve Solomon almost scared me away from gardening. And then here you, Jack, makes a lot more sense and makes it easier. Yeah, um, Steve Solomon's a great dude, but he has some biases he can't get over, and I'll leave it at that. I had him on the show years ago. Smart guy, but he talks himself out and other people out of a lot of things. Next up, fodder tree systems. I do have to credit Nick Ferguson from the expert council with this. I knew of fodder trees, or uh, as it was called uh, back in the day, tree hay or tree silage for a long time. Really understanding how it would implement and interconnect, though, wasn't really something that Nick taught me, but he exposed me to fodder trees at such a level that then I saw the interconnections for myself. And fodder trees are something, when I said, you know, I haven't done all of these, fodder trees are something I've, I've, I've poked at. I've got, I put a whole bunch of poplar and willow into my swales last year. This makes a lot more sense for me now. I have fruit falling on the ground and being eaten by birds right now because we don't eat hardly any fruit. We really don't. And the trees are there, and I'm not going to take them out. They're a st they're, they are an ecosystem stability component, 
Uh, they are food for my animals, and they are reserved for me if we ever really need them. And they are an asset to the property if I sell it someday. So I won't be taking my peaches or nectarines out, but I don't spend a lot of time worrying about them. Sometimes I'll pick just enough to make a batch of meat out of them. Yeah. But the, the fodder trees, the reason I consider this a keystone element is when I just told you to pick a livestock critter, you may have picked rabbits. And if you picked rabbits, you need to be growing fodder trees somewhere. Because between fodder trees and a good clover grass mixture on just a small plot of your land and a bagging lawnmower, you have free meat for the rest of your life. Now, so even though it's not a keystone segment for me, it's not something that I specifically have heavily latched onto. It is so powerful that when you're looking at this quiver of arrows that you're going to pull a certain number from and stake your claim with, it needs to be considered. And if I really needed to up my meat production, it's something that's why it's already happening on kind of a second tier level so that it's already started. And if we ever have to go that route, the food source for the bunnies is already there. We can add the bunnies at any time. I just don't want to right now. That's how important this one is. And it connects to other things. Fodder trees produce a waste stream. But remember, in a properly designed system, there's no such thing as waste. What do I mean by that? I mean that if I plant a whole bunch of white mulberry and hybrid willow and hybrid poplar, and I'm using that as fodder for rabbits, is mainly what we're talking about today, but it could be for goats or it could be sheep or it could be for cattle. Lots of things eat fodder. They're not going to eat it all. There's going to be sticks that are bigger than they want to eat. And when you start growing this stuff, you'll see that in a single season, some of what will grow will be as thick as your wrist by the end of the season. We're either going to compass that. That means we're going to cut it to the ground to grow back for its next cycle. Or we're going to pollard it. And that's anywhere above the ground. I personally, when I pollard a tree, I pollard it about right at my chest height. Do you know why I do that? Because when it, when it comes back and it creates those, those, those uh, uh, stomatic cells that create that kind of gnarly looking thing on it and that next crop grows in, when I come out to cut it down, it's all right here if I'm using a chainsaw or cutters. I don't have to reach and I don't have to bend. That's why I like to do that. Also, once I've cut it for the season, if I need to mow that area for any reason, it's sticking up and I can see it and I don't run over it and plow into it and screw up my lawnmower uh, deck. So that's why if you do it. See, that's a tactic. That, I gave you a technique. That's my tactic. Your tactic might be totally different. You might not care at all about what I just said, but the technique is fodder trees. But that waste stream, all of that excess carbon, it could be put through a chipper and used as mulch. It could be converted into biochar, which we'll talk about in a bit. If it's big enough, it might even be able to be turned into some sort of tool handle or some sort of ornament or some sort of thing you can sell. People buy shit made out of wood all the time, just to be blunt. Who knows what you can do with it? I don't. If it's willow, we might grow willow and actually train it to grow very straight. We might take the majority of it and use it as fodder. And we might design it so that our primary material that we get out of that willow tree is about as big around as a finger and, again, fairly straight. We might design a specific charcoal kiln 
And instead of making biochar for use in the soil or for all the other wonderful things biochar does, we may make artist charcoal and sell that at a premium, especially to a local local artist who specializes in charcoal drawing, who really likes to be able to tell his Ritz artsy fartsy customers even the charcoal is locally produced on a permaculture farm. Does, does that tactic work for you? I don't know. That tactic probably works for one person that will hear this podcast over the next couple of days. That's the point of tactics versus technique. What's the strategy? How do I get there by tactically implementing the technique? Do not let that go through this whole episode. Again, it is the most important overriding concept today. And that's why I keep hitting you in the head with it. And I won't let it go. Here's another example. Grumpy Green Guy says, I'm going for live fencing. So you could create a fodder system that is constantly pollarded at the height you want your fence. And now you've tactically implemented a fodder system to also be a fence. You could do a fodder system that's trees spaced further apart and the trees become the fence posts. And it's not 100% of a living fence. You could do that and implement a second vegetation that intertwines the tree stumps as long as you don't have them constrict like a snake and kill them off. And you could function stack two into that living fence model. I don't know exactly how I would do that. I never really thought about it. I'm just saying, please think this way. Please think this way. All right. Next up. I believe in spite of everything that I said about animals, because it is so powerful to be able to produce fruits, vegetables, and herbs, And when I say fruits here, I'm not talking about apples and pears. I'm talking about things we grow in vegetable gardens that are actually fruits. So when you hear me say that for this section anyway, what I'm saying is a cucumber is a fruit, a tomato is a fruit, a pepper is a fruit. How do you know it's a fruit? Inside of it is a seed. If inside of it is a seed, it is technically a fruit. If there is no seed inside of it, then it's a vegetable. If you're eating the seed, then it's a seed or a grain or a nut. If that makes sense. Okay. So squash is a fruit. So 10 fruits, vegetables, or herbs that are primary crops for your household. And that can mean that they're fed to animals or to people. And my 10 are not that important to you, but I'll give you a few of them. So you understand where I'm coming from. Peppers are one of ours and specifically two of my 10 and you can have more. I'm saying this is your base 10 things you plant every year that you use, that you benefit from, that store well, that you will always use, that you will never just throw away because you don't really want it, that like your climate, that you don't try to keep alive, they want to live. And it's amazing how much production happens the minute you stop trying to do tricky, funky things and grow shit that dies all the time. And that means you might figure out, like I used to just quit growing tomatoes by this time of year. I got tomatoes everywhere. I discovered aspirin tablets. Yeah. Well, James White told me to take aspirin tablets that I already knew about and use them on my tomatoes, and that stopped the blight cold. And even where I have blight, it doesn't kill the plant anymore. And all I do is I put three aspirin tablets into my, this is a tactic, right? Three aspirin tablets into every cup that I start tomato seeds in. And when I plant a tomato, I throw three more aspirin tablets in there. And about once a month, I crush up a bunch of aspirin tablets in a Nutrien Ninja 
put them in a watering can and water off my tomatoes with that. And, and, and now I grow tomatoes. But when I had a blight problem, which is the whole reason I started this soliloquy, when I, and I, my tomatoes kept dying, I just would put a couple of tomato plants in and didn't worry about tomatoes anymore until I found a way to get around it. I, I grew tomatillos at the time because I grew what grew well for me. That's how you select this. Anyway, back to peppers. I grow cubanelles and jalapenos. I grow some other ones, but they're not like that's just because. So I'm not saying only grow 10 things. I'm saying have 10 that you know you can rely on. So I grow jalapenos and cubanelles. You know why? We love jalapenos. We love them as poppers. We love them. Anyway, man, I mean, I'm like a jalapeno fiend. And and jalapenos love it here. I don't know how well they would do in Pennsylvania, but I know they love it here. They get huge. They turn red. They get sweet and hot. We we dehydrate them and make pepper powder out of them. We dehydrate them in big pieces and don't make pepper powder out of them and use them in uh, pickling recipes and stuff like that. I have I have I don't even really dry out jalapenos much anymore. Do you know why? Because I still have dehydrated jalapenos because we grew so damn many of them from Arkansas. That's over 10 years, and they're still good. I'm not kidding. Some of y'all been around long enough, you remember the picture. We had a huge kitchen island in Arkansas, and it was literally a pile. And it was from like 12 plants. So they like the south. So we grow them. I grow the Cuban L's because they're like three different peppers. They're like a banana pepper when they're young. They kind of turn orange, and they're a little bit sweet, and they turn red, and they're thick-walled and juicy sweet. So they're just the, the varieties that do best for me. I still might grow some, you know, regular bells or some serranos or something, but I, those are the two. I grow eggplant. Why? Because I can't even stop it once it starts. And we grow the ping tongue eggplant. It's delicious. You don't have to salt it like a big classic eggplant that's kind of sweet. It's a low carb. It works for my lifestyle and it's highly productive and it dehydrates beautifully. As long as when you use it dehydrated, you just throw it in at the end of like a soup or a stew or casserole. It makes a great vegetable lasagna. Uh, well, not really a vegetable lasagna, a low carb, a, a low carb lasagna, right? So we grow that. We grow Trombacino zucchini. We get basically three crops out of that, right? We get when they're small enough, we can make vegetable noodles out of them, zoodles. They get a little bigger. You have a summer squash you can chop up and use like a summer squash. You let them completely mature. They turn into that back there, and they're like a butternut. And the vine mowers don't kill them. That's enough of what I do. What I do isn't important today. If you try to grow that thing back there, and it doesn't do well, and you know it's not because you just didn't figure out how to garden, like nothing does well, then stop doing that and pick something that does do well. Go see the people around you that have gardens. What are the things they have that they just, they're just trying to give away? That's what to grow. Pick 10 of those things, at least. And no matter what you do, no matter what new thing you try, you know, cucamelons, we grow the hell out of those. They're not very big. They're not high calorie. I don't care. I go out every day and come in with like two hands full of them. And throw them in a pickling brine or throw them into lacto-fermentation. And I end up with a bunch of them. And they make awesome-looking martinis. And nothing bothers them. Even when the cucumbers eventually start to get cucumber mosaic virus, those little things just keep going. So you get cucumber flavor without having to worry about the cucumber beetles. I grow jade cucumber, China jade. It's the most resistant to disease for my area and my diseases. And we don't need a ton of cucumbers. We get really big ones. We make up our cucumber salsa. I'm about to figure out how to do a lacto-fermented 
cucumber salsa, which does, yes, include tomatoes. Uh, but we've made cucumber salsa forever. Uh, I've never done a lacto-fermented version because my wife's not big on the whole lacto-fermented tangy thing. But you know what? I am, so I'm going to do it for myself. Um, find those 10 things you know you can rely on. And build your garden around that. And then play with stuff. Do whatever you want beyond it. But plant enough of those things to provide from you or your animals. I did a whole show on sorghum this year. I haven't eaten sorghum forever. My birds love it. My birds love it. So you maybe one of those 10 things is something you grow for your animals. And we'll talk more about that in a second. Um, worm beds and or black soldier fly composting. And they also stack together really well. Really, really well. So let's talk about black soldier fly first. It's, it's a place I have my least experience. So I've had black soldier flies manage to invade my worm beds, and the worms don't seem to mind. Uh, and they're not going out of their mind or anything, and they can't get out. So every day when I go out and check on the worms, I just pick all the ones that are starting to turn black up off the top, throw them in a cup, and give them to the animals. But if you do a dedicated black soldier fly bin, you can feed them almost anything. They will, What they will not eat is lignin, carbon, et cetera. So with worms, we'll get to that in a second, you really want to make sure you're using good carbon sources in addition to all the other things that you're feeding them. Black soldier flies will eat. You find a dead possum on your road somebody ran over, right? If somebody played the armadillo in the road game and the armadillo lost, you throw that in a black soldier fly bin, and they will disintegrate that thing once it's fully active in like a day, two at the most. There'll be nothing but an armadillo shell left when they're done with it. They will clean it out like a museum piece. If you do, like I do fish, and you fillet a fish, you throw what's left of that fish in there, and they will devour the thing and turn it into a, a, a usable waste stream from a non-usable waste stream very, very quickly. I mean, if you're a hunter and you throw a deer skull in there, hair and everything on, they'll strip that thing down again. It'll look, they'll clean out the brain, and you'll have a European mount. They're that aggressive with their eating, and they will produce something called frost. Now, I'll tell you something about black soldier fly people. They're good marketers. They learn two things. Call the little worm thing before it's a fly a grub and call the waste frost. Frost is poop and the grub is a maggot because it's a true fly. But nobody likes the word maggot or fly crap, right? So they call it frost, right? And a grub. But that frost is okay fertilizer. It's not great. But if you take the frost and put it into your worm beds and let them further process it, now we're tying two elements together with a tactical implementation. That is some of the greatest compost you will ever get. So who is a black soldier fit bin right for? Anybody that just wants one is willing to do the work to maintain it. Done. Anybody with an excessive waste stream beyond what they can handle with worm bins or anybody with access to a waste stream that is tailor-made for black soldier fly and wants to process it, or anybody that wants to make money off black soldier flies, there's actually quite a bit of money in it, right? It's, it's you know, do you fit any of those criteria? And then the, and anybody that has an animal that will eat the grubs when they go into pupa form, who doesn't want to do a lot of work, because when you set a black soldier fly bin up right, 
you set an angle, some sort of ledge, some sort of ramp for them to get out. What they do is they, they just do, from the time they hatch from an egg until they're ready to become a fly, they do not do anything except eat and crap. That's it. Nonstop, 24-7, eat and crap. They will reach a point, just like a caterpillar about to become a butterfly, where they need to go into a pupil state. And they do not want to stay in the waste when they do that. They want to exit the waste and burrow into the ground a little bit, sit in the ground, and metamorph into a fly. They emerge as a fly. When they become a fly, they don't eat. They don't drink. They have sex with another fly. If they're a male, then they go die. If they're a female, they lay eggs, and then they go die. It's like they exist only to decompose stuff. They don't really do anything else. They don't pollinate. They don't sting. They don't lay on. They don't lay eggs on your food. They actually will not lay on the waste. They lay adjacent to the waste. Okay, that's why they're so great, and they dispose of that waste. The other side of this is a worm bin. I think a lot of people would really do great having a black soldier fly bin. I think almost anybody would do great having a worm bin. And I don't care if you build your own. I don't care if you buy one. My item of the day actually is my favorite worm bin. We'll get to that when we get to it. It doesn't matter. The key is that you can continuously take food waste of the right categories and give it to worms, and they make incredible compost. If you go soldier fly through worm, you get even better. But worm castings are some of the most incredibly valuable uh, fertilizer you can get your hands on. And if you want to scale it up, there is money in it. My granddaughter and I were talking about businesses today because I'm still really trying to encourage her. Learn the reading, the writing, and the math. Because if you can get that down, Papa can help you build a business. But Papa can't teach you reading and writing and math and help you build a business. That's kind of you, you got to get there before you can move to the next level. Keep her motivated. A little girl is motivated by work and money, and that's a good thing. And so we were talking about worms today. And she's like, yeah, worms are so gross. And I'm like, okay, um, let's look up how much a pound of worm costs. So I showed her the cost of a pound of worms, and her eyes got about the size of some saucers. And I told her how much a piece of the best steak you can buy in the store. It was $16, $18, $20 a pound, and a pound of worms costs more than a piece of steak got her attention. There is money in worms. Now, I'm not saying you can become a worm billionaire or even a worm millionaire. What I'm saying is anybody out there with enough waste stream can easily produce enough worms to pay for a lot of the other shit so that your your food production really is free food other than energy. There, You know, you can produce a couple hundred pounds of worms a year pretty easily. And do the math. Go see what a pound of worms costs. And what's funny is you can sell worms, and yet most people at worm farm, if you're like, I'm going to start up a worm farm, I'll be like, come over here to get a coffee can, and they'll throw a couple handfuls of worms. Here, go get started. People will give them away, but people will still buy them. So it's, it's this incredible channel of waste stream. Now, we start, how do these elements connect? The Johnson Soup compost, the best thing you can do is monitor the temperature, right? And when the temperature goes below 90 Fahrenheit, as the temperature of the composting comes down, introduce a great big handful of worms to the middle of that bed. I don't tend to do that, even though it's beneficial because the fire ants invade here and I have to kill them and it's a pain in the ass and they kill the worms and what have you. But 
it makes an even great compost even better. So now the worms are making worm compost, but they're also turning the Johnson Sioux compost into advanced worm compost. See why this, see how this all starts to fit together? Next up today is aquatic vegetation. Like I said, not all leaves are for everybody, but what I want to do is I want to back you off all of Jack's advanced aquatic systems today. And I want to give you an idea. You could go out, and I don't advise doing this with kiddie pools. You could. But you could go out and buy a six or eight foot round, and I would recommend going with a poly. They didn't make ones that didn't look like ass back when I did my one out of steel. But even don't even go complicated. One. Now, as long as you don't have animals that are going to get into it, you can put it anywhere you want. But I would advise somewhere with eastern sun and western shade and fill it up with water. I don't give a shit if you fill it up with hose water from a city water source. The chlorine will eventually off-gas, and nature will fix everything. You could set that system up, put nothing in there except a $25 cheap-ass pump, nothing but a pipe coming up off of it and going back down into the water, just recirculating the water. That's it. Nothing else. Okay? And you could use that depending on how you implement it, to grow an ass load of free aquatic vegetations, all of which are palatable to livestock and some of which are beneficial to people. And those would be azolla, um, water hyacinth, and Ipomere aquatica, also known as Kang Kong or Chinese water spinach. Let's go through these. The azolla is just a floating plant. It's a little fern. It makes nitrogen. You now have something you can feed to ducks, you can feed it to chickens. You can feed it to rabbits. Pretty much everything we eat eats it. You can pile it up. It will self-compost into wonderful compost. You can take a big handful of it, drain it first so it's not too wet, and throw it in your worm bin, and your worms will eat it, and they will thank you for it. You can throw it in your black soldier fly bin, and they will eat it. You start and say, like it does. Now, here's what else you can do with it. You, and it, this stuff will, re, like, whatever you take out within about 48 hours in a good system will be back. They say it can double. It's like duckweed does. They say the same thing every 24 hours. Look more during optimum growing conditions in the summer without too much sun every 48 hours. You take that and you just mulch plants with it and you're nitrogen feeding your plants and encouraging biological life in your soil. All from this one stupid little plant that's been around for millions and millions of years longer than humans have walked the earth. Dinosaurs were fighting, dying and making baby dinosaurs and Azola was growing on this planet. That's how ancient it is. And it's, it's spent tens, hundreds of millions of years evolving to be the perfect thing that it is. You don't have to do anything other than use it. So it makes sense to me to grow. Another plant, again, water hyacinth. Again, pretty much everything we eat eats it. Waterfowl like ducks and geese will eat it plus its roots. Your other animals will just eat its uh, top part. You can do a lot of things. You can throw it through a chipper shredder. And mix it into your chicken feed at about 50-50 and cut your feed bill in half. I don't even do that. I have a pond. I have a fence that the ducks can't get to, and I have a pit. I go on one side of the fence. I take a pitchfork. I pick it up. I throw it over the fence into the pit. They eat what they want. They leave the rest of it. That's all part of my Johnson Sioux compost at the end of a season. That pit fills up. We dig it out, and we start it all over again. There's a lot of ways to do it. It will also ferment into ethyl alcohol. You can make fuel with it. 
right? It's considered illegal and invasive in a lot of places. As long as you're not an asshole and go throwing it in the lakes and streams, it ain't a big deal. It ain't a problem. Where it actually can be invasive, it's all the horse is out of the barn. It's already there. Be responsible, but don't think that some dude keeping some water hives in his backyard the state says he can't is going to be a danger to natural ecosystems. It's just not. We have states like Texas that are huge. Honestly, the uh, the southern tip of Texas, if you had a, a scale puzzle, the Texas will scale to the rest of the country, and you took Texas out of its place and put the southern tip of Texas where the northern tip is, the new northern tip of Texas would be in Canada. And treating that whole state north to south like it's the same ecosystem is stupid. So you have to be smart about how you do these things. But water hyacinth is an incredibly valuable plant. It can be composted. You can feed it to livestock, et cetera. And it will take over at the time of the year it becomes too hot. And the azola goes into poor levels of production. So your azola will do really well in your spring and your fall. And your hyacinth will do really well in your summer. Okay. The next one. Ipomere aquatica. It's a member of the sweet potato family. It grows like a freaking weed. It is delicious. You can eat it. The leaves are good and the stems are good. All animals that we eat will eat it as well. It's highly palatable. It's relatively high in protein as a supplemental feed as well, but you can eat it. Just those three are worth having at least one tank that you're running. Now, how do we make sure there's enough nutrient in there? We can introduce nutrient. We can take a tea bag full of worm castings and put it in there once every couple of weeks. That'll do amazing things. Like I said about my aquatic, my, my tr fish tanks, you can build an ecosystem in there. But the thing, if you don't want fish like you would typically think of, like something you would eat, that's fine. I get it. Put mosquito fish in there, gambrusia. Uh, they're basically the North American guppy. You will not have any mosquito problems because they will eat all the mosquitoes. They're live bears. They breed. They don't eat their own babies. I would personally, in all but the coldest climates, introduce uh, neocardania, which are a tropical shrimp that survives cold weather just fine. I have them outdoors for five years now. They live through the great Texas freeze that everybody still freaks about. And the people that freak about it weren't living here because it wasn't as bad as the TV told you it was. But they lived through that. That gone 60,000 acre ache, lake south of me froze over end to end. And those little shrimp that are supposed to only live in uh, aquarium tanks with heaters, they live through it. Just those two things in there and a natural ecosystem will form. That water can then be used for irrigation, et cetera. We can throw a little bit of ebb and flow aquaponics into that system. That's another technique we'll get to in a second. But we can grow some other stuff with it. But the aquatic vegetation does so much. Well, what am I going to feed my worms when I run out of a waste stream? Feed them this stuff. They'll eat it. They'll like it. Without even trying, I've discovered another great food source comes out of my aquatic systems. Bane of my existence, string algae. Anybody's ever dealt with string algae? It's, it's a pain in the ass. It clogs things up. It grows, until that top coat of vegetation forms over in that transitional period, it, it explodes in a lot of aquatic systems. You pull it out. You know what I do? I have a the little pots like you plant aquatic plants in, I'll take one of those and I'll just throw it in there so it's not super wet and let it drain a bit. And then I go throw up my worm bins. Worms love it. They love it. It's like bedding and food all in one. Right. So now we even take something that's kind of a problem and we turn it into a solution. That seems like a permaculture principle, doesn't it? Oh, you want to get rid of it? You don't want to pull it out? Throw crayfish in your system. They eat the hell out of it. They love it. 
you won't have a string algae problem if you have a healthy population of crayfish. You could have crayfish in a you know an eight foot round stock tank, taking care of your string algae because you don't want to feed it to worms and you don't want to deal with it, and you still have another resource there in the crayfish. They're like little lobsters. I'm sure you can come up with a way to create habitat for them so they can breed for you. You might even throw something in there, a smaller crayfish, but like marble crayfish that are self-propagating. They just make new babies all the time. All of them are basically hermaphroditic, and they produce their own eggs and their own sperm, and they make more baby crayfish. They're, and if you didn't eat them, I bet you ducks eat them. I've never tried it, but I bet they do. There's always something you can do with an aquatic system. So really consider at least the aquatic vegetation. Biochar. I've done so much on biochar this year. Um, I don't want to go long on this one today, but to me, if you have a waste stream of carbon material that's larger than your thumb, you should probably be making at least some biochar every year. It is the most impactful thing that I've ever done to my property. I've seen the results almost immediately just in when I make my potting mix now for starting my seeds every year, I now put 15% biochar into whatever I'm making my, my compost from. So if I figure out there's, you know, a hundred scoops, you know, that would just be a nice round number. Then 15 scoops of biochar get added to it. Just the ability to water starts less and have them be more resilient is enough. If you add enough fertility to your biochar, it is an advantage right from the beginning. It doesn't suck up the fertility like some people say that it does. And if you just do that, if that's all you do, then every time you plant a transplant out of your seed starting system into your garden, you're introducing more biochar into your garden. The most effective way I've been able to explain this to people, is biochar is to the soil, is a coral reef is to the sea. It is not fertility in of itself. It is not fertilizer. It is structure. And that structure allows life to attach to it, form to it, and build the soil web like nothing else I've ever seen. And when I, and again, you start looking at interconnections. When I take this stuff, this biochar, and I grind it up into a fine granule, and I mix it into that Johnson Sioux-like compost I make, it's better than anything I've ever seen in my life. That, going forward, is my potting mix. 15% uh, biochar, 85% Johnson Sioux compost mixed together, and then some mineral amendments like basalt or green, green sand and things like that, uh, fungal inoculum, et cetera, a little bit of worm compost thrown in there with it. But it's... It's, it's basically the best soil you can make when you put those two things together. And it harnesses that waste stream, and it's something you can sell, and it's the best way to move life from one property to another. If you make awesome compost tea and you want to sell it to people that don't live where you are, like anything more than a couple blocks down the street, so you have a problem, you make a compost tea like that, and as soon as the aeration stops, everything in it starts to die. So you put it in a jug and you ship it overnight as fast as you can right after you make it to somebody five states away. It happens to get there and it's still a little bit alive. They get it on a Tuesday and they don't have time to garden until Saturday. By the time they open that jug and start using that compost tea you sent them, it's dead. 
It can't live. It's depleted all the oxygen. It's dead. There's some ways to like basically put these life forms into a form of suspended animation. In a jug, tightly sealed is not one of them. But if you infuse it into biochar and allow it to breathe and you give it a house and all those little critters can hide inside that biochar, you can put together, let's say, a two-pound bag of awesome compost with biochar, and you can sell that for a lot of money for what it is for you. And the person that buys it, they will not regret the purchase. So that's just one way to monetize it. So to me, when you can deal with a waste stream, improve your own production, and or monetize at the same time, that's great. Now, how's it stacking into some other things? Well, we put it into our bedding and our coop, so it ends up in our compost anyway. That's one way. It also reduces stink in there. If we're storing food like in a pantry, let's say we're going to put a bunch of apples in a bin, the best thing you can do is line the bottom of the bin with about a half inch of biochar. Those that'll absorb the ethylene off gassing and those apples will store longer. You can put it and when you save your seeds and you put them in your little thing, you label them, put a, a good pinch of biochar with your seeds and they'll stay fertile a lot longer. There, I mean, there's 50, 60 uses for biochar that we know of already. Yeah, we can use it for filtration. I mean, there's so we can use it to basically do soil remediation. We can feed it to our livestock by mixing it into their feed at about, you know, I do a cup to a half a bucket. When I say a cup, I don't even know if it's a cup. I, I, I have a flat end cap for four-inch PVC pipe that I'd laying around. And when I needed to put the biochar in the bucket of duck food the first time I did it, I saw that cap. I threw it in the bucket. It's never left. And so that's what I did. No magic to it. And they eat it. When you put it in their bedding, they eat it. And it improves their feed efficiency, and it reduces occurrences of diseases and removes toxins, and it becomes inoculated. When it, see, you can't not do this, in my opinion. You have a waste stream, and you just turned it into all that by burning it properly. So biochar. Uh, automated irrigation. I went out this, this, this morning just before I hit go on this uh, live stream, and I looked at my garden, and I stood there in awe. Because yesterday the heat index here was 115 degrees. And except for a few squash leaves that the squash bugs are hitting pretty hard, you can't tell that that garden is stressed at all. And the number one reason is because this winter I put in automated irrigation. And I have fully semi-automated irrigation. I don't even have like a, uh, you know, what do you call them? Uh, I can't think of solenoid or anything like that, that there's power out there. I have little egg timers, one for each bed. I walk around, turn them all at 15 minutes or 30 minutes, whatever amount of time it pushes water through some PVC pipes that drip irrigate. And it's, it's better than it's ever been. Now I think the biochar and the introduction of the compost, that's something to do with it too. But that soil has never been dry. It's never dried out once. It takes one time for your garden soil to really dry out. It's hard as hell to really get it hydrated again. A lot of the components that will become hydrophobic when it dries out like that. And you'll need like you get a half inch of rain and you go feel your soil four inches down and it's dry. When you automate irrigation, you prevent this from happening. Now, why did I go fully semi-automatic, right? Well, I did that because I believe that you should lay eyes on your garden every day anyway, and I do. Um, I spend at least a little bit of time every day drinking some coffee, looking at the pond that's part of that garden system. I watch my big giant three and a half foot platinum koi cruise around and stuff and maybe throw them a couple of pellets and watch them come up and eat it. And 
what have you. So I'm going to be there anyway. And I think you should look, especially during the growing season, you should look at your garden every day. You notice problems faster, et cetera. So I have to go out to do it. But it takes like if I don't have time to fart around that day, I can walk out there, turn the dial. I can tell my grandson, go turn all the dials in 15 minutes and I'll check it later to see if I think that was enough irrigation. One way or another, automate your irrigation. Because when you have to make a decision, when it comes to irrigation, do I have time for today? If Sooner or later, it'll be the wrong one, and it takes one or two times at the wrong time of year to completely shit-can your production for that year. Even if everything doesn't die, it will stunt, it will become stressed. And when do pests hammer your production? When the production itself, when the garden itself is under stress, these insects, they, they intrinsically know when a plant is stressed. They know when it's weakened and it actually gives them more of what they want when it's in that condition. They're, so you got to think they have a reason for existing. Just like we said, the black soldier fly literally exists to decompose things that otherwise would rot and stink to return it to nature. That's what it is. It's a decomposer. It's a, it's, it's a purpose in life. Well, these insects exist to eliminate plants that are weak so that plants that are strong can occupy the same space. So if you weaken your plants, you are ringing the dinner bell for every pest insect, and then they camp out. Well, this is a good place. Found some good stuff here before. There might be some good. So when you start trying to revitalize it, they just keep nomming on it. So automate that irrigation. Hydroponics slash aquaponics. Okay. Um, I don't do a lot of hydro. I did a lot to learn about it so I could teach it. I don't think you should be teaching things you've never done. I find that to be reprehensible. I had a lot of questions about it and I thought there were some things it could do for me. You know what it does really well? It lets me eat things like arugula, lettuce, and fresh basil in February. You can set up one little tiny system. I mean, as big as a bookshelf. And you can produce salad all through your winter indoors. It's worth doing for that alone. It's also a great way to start plants that you will then later transplant into soil. So it's great for that. But for some people, it is the answer. I live in an apartment. I don't know what to do. Well, what I said I can do in the winter, you can do 365 days a year. Aquaponics is kind of specialized, but I think that it fits so well into the function stacking that we talked about. If you're growing aquatic vegetation, you might as well throw a couple uh, ebb and flow beds and maybe one deep water bed onto it eventually because it's more production that you can do. And again, we can grow things with aquaponics that even if we don't use them, if we're a livestock producer or a worm farmer, they can. So you know that plant I talked about called Ipamir aquatica, and I said it grows like crazy. It's almost out of control, and it's delicious, and it's sweet potato family and all that. Yeah. Um, I've never seen it grow with the intensity it grows. If you plant it in a, in a ebb and flow aquaponics bed, and then train the vine into a water source like a pond or a tank so that it's both in the bed getting the, the exchange flow with the main root system and the stems of it float, they're hollow, and it'll send roots off of those and start vining off of that. I had a 50-gallon ebb and flow bed sitting on top of a 100-gallon tank in my aviary at one time. I planted this stuff 
in the ebb and flow bed. And again, it went down into the tank and then spooled over the 100-gallon tank. I was going in there about once every two and a half to three weeks and cutting it and then hauling it out in buckets and filling a wheelbarrow with it and feeding a wheelbarrow of it at a time to my ducks. And from the time that started until what got cold enough in fall to slow it down, I never, never didn't have it happen every two to three weeks. I literally had to cut it so it didn't eat the place. And I've never seen it do that when you grow it just in the water or just in the ebb and flow bed, combining the two. So that would be another way to leverage that. But I think everybody should learn about this and then determine whether or not it fits your situation. But I'm betting one of the two do. And they're very different things. Hydro and aquaponics are different things. And aquatics is a completely different thing than either of those. There is a blur line between aquaponics and aquatics that I can't get into today, but it has to do with scale. It has to do with scale. Uh, and there's certain limitations to both sides of it. Moving on, food preservation. I think you should have at least two or three methods of food, uh, food preservation that work for you and for the things that you produce. For me, my three biggest ones are lacto-fermentation, blanch and freezing, and dehydration. I do not yet own a freeze dryer. I probably will soon. Uh, I'm, I'm really, I'm soul searching over whether it's worth the investment or not for me. Um, it would be great for surplus eggs when we're not selling them all. The thing is we, by reducing the duck head count, we pretty much sell as many eggs as we, we have in surplus anyway. Um, Lacto-fermentation to me is one of the ways that you actually make vegetation deliver on its promise of nutrition. Because this is what I've always tried to teach about gardening and, and plant production, and people struggle with this. You don't feed plants, you feed soil. And what the plants really need is life in the soil. And if you give true, abundant, aerobic living soil a shot, it will grow plants better than you ever could by yourself. It's the life in the soil. I want you to go back when we talked about Johnson soup. How can you take compost that's probably about 2-1-2, if you're lucky, in NPK, spread it on an acre, add a ton to the acre, and get a result? How does that make any sense? If you spread a ton of 2-1-2 granular fertilizer on an acre, you get no, you wouldn't be able to discern a result. You put it side by side to another acre and look the same. It's not enough to matter. So how does it work? It's alive. It enhances the soil life and food web. And that's what the plant grows on. What does that have to do with lacto-fermentation? Human health is directly related to the life in your guts. And most Americans gut health is frankly garbage. And if you look at like the work of Dr. Price, Dr. Weston A. Price, what he determined was every indigenous group that he, he investigated in his research that had incredible health, despite not having access to modern medicine, had a fermented food in their diet. Every single one of them. It's back to what we talked about yesterday, the link between food and humanity and salt, because you need salt to do this. It's, it, I think it tastes incredible, and it's feeding the life web in your 
gut biome. And it's dramatically stupid easy to do, and I probably should do a show on it, and I probably will next week. If not next week, the week after, it's time for us to revisit that topic. I also like dehydration because it's simple. You buy a dehydrator, you set the temperature, you put the food in it. When it's done, you take it out, you put it in a jar, you put a lid on it, you throw it in the pantry, and it lasts. Again, I've got peppers from Arkansas. I might do something with them at the next workshop in November this year. That'd be kind of cool, wouldn't it? 15-year workshop, 10 years out of Arkansas. We'll go ahead and do something with those peppers. We'll do that. I'll figure out what I want to do with them. Maybe some salsa matcha. What's salsa matcha? Stay tuned. That'll be coming soon, too. All right. But look it up if you haven't. You'll thank me later. But find three methods of food preservation that work for you with what you grow. Again, we grow a lot of eggplant dehydration. You know, and anything that dehydrates well, you get a food processor. You set your disc to the diameter or the thickness you want. Throw it on the trace, turn it, click. Oh, if you already have a dehydrator and it doesn't have a timer on it, go buy yourself an $8 mechanical timer like you can find at tspaz.com. Um, the little sentry timers and set it for how long you want it to be and plug it into the wall and turn it to where it'll start and plug your dehydrator in. And if you forget about it for a day, it'll turn itself off instead of sitting there running all day. And if that timer wears out, you're out eight bucks, you put a new one up. Real, real, real simple. And those are so easy to use, the sentry ones, that anybody can do it even me because I don't like digital crap. It messes with me. Anything that makes me think about my days of fighting fax machines, the natural enemy of the man in the workplace in the 1990s was the fax machine. All right, next up, brewing compost tea. I wanted to throw this one in. This is one of my, I think, sledgehammers in fighting back against fertility issues, disease issues, etc. I've still not got into Korean natural farming or any of that stuff. I just make compost tea, and I spray my plants primarily in the evening with it. And I spray them on the top of the leaf and the bottom of the leaf, and I do soil drench with it. And this year, I got to see just from a little bit of worm compost tea. So I took some worm compost and some some of my best garden soil and some of my Johnson soup, put it all in a bag, made up a five-gallon bucket, four gallons, actually, of compost tea, and was diluting at it about three gallons of water to one gallon of compost tea and applying it. And I ended up with a little bit left in the bottom of the bucket that wasn't really enough to do anything with. I added a little bit of water to it. I was looking what I'm going to do with it, and one of my big wicking beds and one of my bee bomb in it, I said, screw it. I just dumped the bucket in the middle, and that bee bomb had just started to grow. And you know what it looks like right now? The center of it's like a pyramid higher than the rest of it, just from that little – that shows you what it does. I also want to talk about this because when I had uh, Michael Whitman on, he's like, I don't make it, and I sell this Ambrosia product, which, by the way, is a great product, and it works really, really well. But he gave all the reasons not to do it. And his basic reasons were to do it perfectly. Here's how you have to do it. And it it is hard to do it perfectly. And here's my response to that. I didn't say it to him because I bring guests on and let them give their viewpoint, not to argue with them. Don't let perfect be the enemy of the good. Here's how I make compost tea. I take the compost that I want to make tea from. I put it in a paint strainer bag. I tie a string to it. And I put it in a five-gallon bucket, and I I tie the string to something above it where it doesn't quite touch the bottom of the bucket. I take a a heme uh, aquarium pump, has two tubes on it and two air stones, and I throw them in the bucket. Plug it in. Sometime between the next 24 and 48 hours, I use the compost tea. 
Is it at its optimum production? I don't give a shit. When I put it through a sprayer, might some of the little critters get destroyed by it? Yeah, I don't give a shit. It works. It works, and anybody can do it, and don't make it hard. Don't worry about vortex spinning and holding your navel right and contemplating the moon while the bubbles go, and is the bubble the right diameter, and did some goddess come down from all above and touch it? Fuck it. Okay, to be blunt, screw it. Make the compost tea, drench the soil, spray the plants. Just spray it in the evening or really early in the morning so the sun's not on the plants when you do it, and it will change everything. Now, what I'll add to that is if you have some wood vinegar, which is liquid smoke, about two tablespoons of wood vinegar to to four gallons, and you include that, it will also do a dramatic improvement on the repelling of pests. Just don't spray it on plants about the time that they need pollinators because it literally pushes pollinators off too. And part of the reason I've done some well with squash this year is that until the flowers came, I was spraying the hell out of them with a mix that included the liquid smoke uh, right up until they started to flower. And even when they started to flower for a while, I was still doing it and just doing manual pollination with squash is really, really easy. So compost tea. These are the 12 things. That I don't care that you do them all. But if you build your core, your core by selecting from here, again, seeing this like a quiver, I don't know who the dude is. The dude in Marvel Comics, is it Hawkeye with the bow and arrow? Is that right? My grandson loves all that shit. But, you know, he has all these different arrows, and sometimes it's a flaming arrow and an exploding arrow and a piercing arrow, or it's an arrow that hits and falls off like nothing happened. It put a tracker in something. Like you're selecting the right arrow. So you load the quiver up first for all the things you could need. Build your quiver on these 12. And that doesn't mean you don't have some other special arrows that you use. But these things won't let you down, and they naturally interconnect. I think this would be an interesting exercise if you want to train your mind in design. Go ahead and make a list of these, right? Make a list and start, like, remember in school you had tests where you had which one goes with which you had to connect them? Start connecting, but, you know, each one could connect to more than one and come up with as many ways to connect these as possible. Don't worry about whether it works for you or not, You want to be a good designer, you should be able to go to anybody's property, analyze the property and the client, and do the design. And you will do better designs for yourself that way. And you might discover some things you don't think are for you that are for you when you figure out how it all connects together. How many connections can you make? How many connections can you make? How many things can you connect the one thing to? Can you connect aquatic vegetation to biochar? I picked that one because it doesn't give you a direct way to do so. But I bet you can. I bet you can if you work at it. What if we add biochar to the aquatic system? What if we're feeding the worms aquatic vegetation, but we're adding biochar to the worm bin, which we should do? Haven't we now created at least a one-off connection? I would tell you that I think you could connect every single one of these 12 bulletproof techniques today to every other one. And when you design, when you design a system, the more connections, the more web-like the design and the more resilient the design is. If I give you a net and I cut four lines in it, 
you throw it in the water, you might have some holes and some of the fish might get out, but it still catches fish. If I give you a rod and a hook with one line connecting them, and I cut that line anywhere above the hook, which should be anywhere, you don't catch any fish. This is the problem with modern design. Modern design is linear. Modern design, I'm talking about the way we design systems in society. Since everybody's worried, how much profit do we make this week, this quarter, this year, and screw the rest? Quarterly and annual profit runs everything. Everything's linear. This thing connects to this thing, connects to this thing, connects to this thing. And it takes one little hiccup in, in the society, one ship gets stuck in a canal, and the supply lines are screwed for months. But in a net design, Individual failures are not catastrophic. Even if a piece of the system dies, the system as a whole lives. So as much interconnection as you can create. And let me finish one more time. Technique, tactic, strategy. It's a hierarchy. So how do we reverse engineer the design? Since I can't quite figure out what my strategy really is. Well, we pick the techniques that will best apply to us. Then we, we make the interconnections, and the interconnections define the tactics. Then we sit back and we examine the techniques and tactics and say, well, what do I really want to get out of this? Then we can come up with a sentence or two that defines our entire strategy. And then we rework the system back from the strategy back down through the tactics to the techniques, and we get an airtight design. And any one of you that does that on your property with sincerity, that doesn't get bogged down in analysis paralysis. It doesn't think that you're a special little snowflake and your property is different than everybody else's. You'll design a better system than most professionals could design from you, for you. You really will. Now, it still might be worth having a consultant come sanity, like on large scale, expensive installations. You bet. You know, having someone like a Nick Ferguson come in for fifteen hundred bucks or two thousand bucks or whatever it is. And, and, and overhaul the whole thing will probably sell you $10,000 over five years. That's a good investment. But even if you don't, you can do so much better for you, yourself than you think you can. And that's why I was willing to come at this from a technique standpoint today, even though it's counterintuitive for me to do. And when I started, all I thought about was technique and a little bit about tactic. I was still like that corporal that's about to become a sergeant. Maybe he's been to PLDC. That's primary leadership development, right? Um, and started to get some exposure to strategy. But even though I understood this design process in a business, because I had to, or I would have never been successful in business. When I first started really doing the permaculture thing, it was like, oh, hugel culture. I'll make everything a hugel culture. You had this disjointed hugel culture, man. It worked sitting out here by itself, not interconnected to anything. It doesn't make any sense. How do you move through your property? Why do you, what would you do on your property if it wasn't a homestead anyway? What is your entrenched characteristic? Do you have a mailbox that you go to every day? That's a pathway. Once you start adding elements like small livestock and you put a chicken coop in, well, you're going to the coop every day. That is a way that you will intrinsically forever until you get rid of those birds. Some point every day, probably twice a day, you will take that path through that pathway. How does that interconnect with the rest of the things, your strategy? And how does that yield the tactical implementation of your technique? 
and then take that lesson and apply it to life. You want to build a business, what's your strategy? How do you tactically employ techniques to achieve your strategy? You have to be the commander, the lieutenants, the sergeants, and the privates in this implementation. And this is what we should be teaching kids. When people talk about fixing our education system, and all they mean is either pay teachers more or get the wokeism out or whatever they mean. They don't mean anything to me. If we're not going to start teaching kids to think like this, then school is fundamentally worthless. Well, Jack, at least they learn to read and write. You can learn to read and write with a computer. Put a kid alone in a room long enough with a computer, they'll learn to read and write on their own. Maybe not as well as they could, but they will. Because they'll want to do things and they'll need to figure it out. And humans learn things when we need to learn them. When we need, when need meets desire, learning happens. So the stuff that we say, well, at least they learn this or at least they learn that, a lot of shit they learn they'll never use. But they'll be a damn good cog in the system or a damn good sprocket in the system, won't they? Let me tell you something. What you learned today is way more important than about growing a garden or having a worm bit. What you learned today, hopefully, and maybe you need to listen to this one again, is how to think your way out of slavery. The average person in this country is nothing but a proud slave that shines their chains and says, look at my chains. They're shinier than all the other slaves. Well, maybe some of those slaves up there have diamonds on their chains. I don't quite rate that, but I'm a good mid-level slave, and I live a great life. That's what an average American is today, including people that have diamonds on their chains, right? You're just a slave. If you're not driving the strategy in your own lifestyle design, if you're not the originator of the strategy, Someone else is. If someone else has designed the strategy as to where your life ends up, they own your ass by proxy. And if you can't tell me what the strategy in your life is and you don't know where you're going and you can take all the technique you want and it's just wasted energy and it will never be tactically implemented to optimum results. It will never happen. It's like trying to get in a ship, get it up to speed, leaving Japan. You want to end up in L.A. You know L.A. is, you know, uh, east. So you get the ship up to speed heading east, and then you cut the motors and go drift and think, sooner or later we'll get to L.A. And you might, but it will be a damn happy accident if it happens. And it will not be on time. And everybody on the ship will probably be dead before it happens. And pirates will probably find your dead bodies and not even have to steal from you because you're already dead and just take your ship and go wherever the hell they want with it. That's your life. If you don't understand this lesson, that's why I said it's the most important thing that I can teach you. Develop a strategy. Determine the techniques that allow you to reach the strategy and the tactics that connect them together and constantly, like a good commander, take a step back and reanalyze. Does the strategy still make sense? Does it need to be altered or redesigned? Okay, no, it still makes sense. It's great. Are we actually getting closer? Where are we weak? How do I fix this one little piece here? How to make it just a little bit better? What's the but what's the magnified effect of a lifetime achieving a one percent improvement when I'm twenty? Do the math. Assuming you're gonna live to be ninety. 
if you improve the overall process by 1% at the age of 20, it compounds every year at 1% for 60 years. No, 70 years, right? 70 years. What's the compounded effect on improving the end result at the end of your life? And then tell me you have time not to worry about that 1%. Strategy, tactics, technique. With that, guys, let's go ahead and wrap things up. Let me remind you guys, if you like the show and the work that we do, you can do your online shopping beginning at tspaz.com. That's right, tspaz.com, where you find all the items that I use in my life reviewed honestly. And if I wouldn't spend my money on it again, I wouldn't recommend it. I say that all the time, but in this case, I did spend my money on it again. I got one of these going, and I realized as much waste as we were putting into uh, the worm bins from all of the aquatic vegetation, uh, all of the regular food waste, especially from the kids, the coffee grinds, et cetera, that I had more than I could give my worms. So I bought a second bin and I acted like a beekeeper. I literally took half of the worms out of one of them and put them in a second one, started up a second one and split my worm farm, like split the beehive. And now they're both doing great. This is one of the most forgiving methods of worm farming there is. It is over a hundred bucks. So there are a lot of ways to set up a worm farm for less but if you want the easy button and you want something specifically to use indoors, this is really worth taking a look at. Again, it's called the Urban Worm Bag. For me, what it, what makes it really work is it's suspended and it goes indoors. And the way it zips up, I have not had it invaded by ants. I have wanted to farm worms on this property since I moved here. And I hadn't done it until this spring because every time I tried to do it, Sooner or later, the damn thing got invaded with fire ants that colonized it and killed all the worms. And since fire ants aren't good for composting, I had eventually done what I recommend. If something just doesn't work until you find a way to make it work, stop doing it. Don't be the fly in the window. Something's coming tomorrow about the fly in the window, by the way. Anyway, um, this thing just is awesome. And I I recommend not only do you read my write-up on it, but go ahead on YouTube and start looking for people that own this thing and use this thing. And we're going to be talking more about worm farming in the future. I'm going to do a whole show on vermicomposting. But you see, I've done a pretty extensive write-up. I even did a quick little video of my own setup right after I got it done. This is a great way not just to uh, make great uh, compost and great compost tea material and and, uh, to deal with a waste stream. It's also a great way to incorporate biochar about every third feeding, I put like a, a red solo cup full of granulated biochar into my worm bin. So it's passing through the worms. It's being incorporated. So it's going to be biochar infused, super stuff at the end of it. And again, if I was going to do commercial worm farming and I was going to you know, try to grow thousands and thousands and thousands of worms or what have you, I probably would have to figure out some way to do this a less expensive way. But for home scale, homestead scale production for on-farm use, a couple of these are totally worth the money. Check them out. And there are some negative reviews. Just read my write-up. And, you know, like I say, a lot of times when I'm analyzing a product, I do look at the reviews. And my question first is, what are the negative reviews? And are they intelligent or are they from special children? And in this case, they're from special kids. Um, you can just look at it yourself and you'll see why. Like these are people who didn't read the instructions, don't know how worms work and don't understand physics. If you understand how worms work and you understand physics and you read the instructions, 
you'll have a great result with this product. Again, it's called the Urban Worm Bag. And I think I'm going to reach out to the dude that founded this company and see if I can get him on the show. I think he'd make a great interview. I've seen some uh, YouTube videos with him. He seems to be a pretty cool guy. And I think there's some other things coming to this uh the T-SPAS catalog related to worm farming in the future and processing and dealing with waste that can become bedding. Uh, we'll talk more about that in the future. I appreciate you being with us today. Uh, tomorrow, we are going to be talking about, what are we going to be talking about? Permaculture education, careers, and business with our special guest tomorrow. Thursday, I have no idea what we're going to do yet. Friday will be expert council Q&A. But for the foreseeable future, we are on a regularly scheduled program. Again, thank you guys for 15 freaking years. 15 great years. 13 and a half years of full-time podcasting. You guys have made it possible for me to do what I do. And on that note, real quick. I have got four, count them, four tickets left to the 15-year anniversary party that happens exactly one month from today, Thursday, the 20th of July. If you want to come to that, you can find a link in the video notes below. It'll be in the audio notes as well for today. And four tickets remain, and almost everybody's been buying them in pairs lately. So that's probably two couples is what's going to happen there. With that, take care. Catch you guys tomorrow with another episode. run you around. You should have a house the American way. A dollar down, a dollar a month, and you never have to pay. There's a better way to do this. Let me show you a better way.